I, uh, I heard a comedian recently talk about how odd show business is. And uh, because I am a little bit familiar with the business known as show, uh, I responded to it. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I spent a little bit of time in L.A., and, and I was quite an accomplished background artist, a.k.a. an extra. Um, I'm not going to talk too much about it because I've already mentioned it to you before. I've actually even shown a clip before. But if you haven't seen my work, first season of The O.C., rent it, go on Netflix or whatever, and, and you can see some of my best work. Um, but this comedian was talking about how odd what is actually happening in a movie um, is, uh, like when they're filming the movie. So Whenever they're shooting a scene, normally they'll start by shooting a, 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 a wide angle of the scene. And so it'll be kind of back far, and you're getting the whole scenery in, you're getting all the characters in. And, and this comedian was talking about being on this one film where they were shooting inside a boardroom, and there are all these characters around the table, and you know it's the wide shot, and you do that a couple times. But then she said... After they do that, then they, then they go in for a tighter shot where usually there's only three or so characters. And when they go in to shoot that, all of a sudden, everything else kind of goes away. So if, if it's on a set, all of a sudden the walls go away and it looks nothing like what it looked like in that first shot. But she said if you're, if you're actually shooting in a real conference room, all of a sudden all this heavy equipment and all these lights and, and rigs and everything moves in very close to the actors so that it's just outside the frame. And so all of a sudden you have a very cramped space, a very cramped room. And so she was saying in this one scene, I think she was uh, doing a scene with Glenn Close or some, some like very well-renowned actress. And she said, uh, you know, Glenn Close comes up to her and says, I need this on my table. I need this on my desk tomorrow morning. And then she turns to walk away. She says, now, when you watch the movie, you imagine her walking out of the room because you've already seen the room. You know where the door is. That's where your mind goes. But she said, in reality, Glenn Close goes, I need this on my desk tomorrow morning, and then turns to walk away and then goes like this. And she said she's sitting there like this for the rest of the scene. And the reason it is she's doing that is because there's all this equipment and she can't actually get out of the room. And she has to get so low so that she doesn't block the light on the actors that are still in the scene. So she said you have this scene and then you've got this actor just sitting there like this. And nobody knows it. Like you and I aren't thinking that. And then she said she, she got tickled because the, the guy who was in the scene with them said something. And then he turns and he goes and stands like this as soon as he gets out of the shot. And so there are these two actors standing there looking ridiculous. And all the while, you and I were watching the film, we have no idea that that's happening. So next time you watch a movie and there's a close-up and an actor walks out, imagine that that's what's happening. You see, movies and political campaigns and our Instagram accounts are all carefully crafted to only allow us to see some things. Have you ever wondered what's on the outside of that square in the Instagram picture? Like what's just beyond what you and I are able to see? One of the reasons that we spend the summers, we spent the last few summers studying a single book of the Bible is to keep us as a community from falling into the trap of picking and choosing what parts of the Bible we want to focus on. By going through a book, we can't just skip over parts. We can't just say, well, this part makes me uncomfortable or I don't like this part. We just have to deal with whatever comes next. As the Apostle Paul wrote to his young protege Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching and rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 
So James, after opening his letter, which we looked at last week, he opens his letter with a very candid conversation about suffering. And then the very next thing he wants to talk about is about the importance of being people under God's word. Because he knows that there's no way that you and I can find joy in whatever circumstances we find ourselves, especially in times of trial and suffering, unless God's word has reshaped not only our thinking, but our hearts. So let's look together at the passage for today, which is James 1, and I'm going to start reading in the 19th verse. If you don't have a Bible, it's printed in your bulletin. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror. And after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. This is God's word. A word which humbles us and grows us and sets us free. I once heard a pastor say, you don't read the Bible if you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, the Bible reads you. In fact, I want to go back, and it's a verse that's not printed in your bulletin because it was one we looked at last week, but, but I want to go back and read the verse right before where we started. Verse 18 says this, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, meaning that Christians are people who have come to new life because the Holy Spirit takes the word of God, the word of truth, and moves it from our heads to our hearts. He takes the Bible as something that we once read to something that now reads us. And then James goes on in this verse to say, this new birth through the word makes us a kind of first fruits. What does that mean? Well, first fruits uh, were the beginning of the harvest. When you went out to harvest the first fruits, whatever you initially took in of your harvest, that was to be an offering to God. This was the big problem with Cain. If you, if you remember the story from very early in the Bible, in the very first book of the Bible in Genesis, uh, right after Adam and Eve have, have turned against God and sinned, we get a story of their two sons, Cain and Abel. And we find out that their experience with God is greatly different because of how, um, how they make an offering to him. Abel offers to God an offering that's pleasing to him because he gives his first fruits. And he was a shepherd, and so that meant he gave his best sheep. And then you have Cain, and Cain didn't give, he was a farmer, he didn't give God his first fruits, he gave God his leftovers. After he took what he wanted, what he needed, he then gave God his Brussels sprouts, or whatever was like he wanted to throw away. And so, so God did not like that. 
Well, when James says in verse 18 that as Christians, as people who have been um, read by God's word, that we are becoming first fruits, what he's essentially saying is that you and I no longer look at God's word as something just to learn from or to debate or something to read. It's something that we allow to read us because in doing so, it turns us into an offering for God. You and I now take God's word and we look at it and we say, I no longer can live the way I want to live. I'm no longer on my own. From now on, I surrender control of determining how I should live. And I place myself under the authority of God's word. For the Christian, God's word is no longer just good advice. But let me say something to anyone who's here who's, who's not a Christian. Um, I want to say to you, I am so glad you're here. I hope that you feel welcomed, and I hope that this is a safe place for you where you feel like you can come and be you, and you can ask your questions. But if I'm honest, I want you to become a Christian. I really do, because I know that it's changed my life. But if, if you're not into that, if you're not going to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior today, I want you to know that you can at least take this away from the sermon. God's word is great advice. If you were to read God's word, you would find wisdom beyond your belief. You would find wisdom in how to make good decisions. You'd find wisdom on how to be a better friend, how to be a better husband, how to be a better wife, how to be a better parent. It's better than any self-help book you could read. In fact, James is so practical. I encourage you, even if you're not a Christian, to join our James Challenge for the summer and read it and see what you learn from it. But if you are a Christian, the Bible is more than just good advice. It's more than just a set of rules and guidelines. Because for a Christian, we aren't reading the Bible and we aren't looking down at it and trying to decide what's helpful. We're not looking at it and saying, okay, well, I like this and, and I don't like this. No, for a Christian, the Bible reads us. It looks down on us and says, oh, I like that. Oh, I don't like that. Now, this is helpful for you, but, but this, what you're doing, is not helpful for you. This has to change. See, the Bible, God's word, is in the process of making us an offering to God, a first fruit. And we can tell our hearts have been changed when we realize that we want God to tell us how to live. When we come to a place where humbly we say, okay, I know that if I'm left on my own, I'm going to make some bad choices. I know that I'm going to screw it up. I know that I have a tendency to go towards things that aren't good for me or others. So God, I want you to tell me how to live. See, God's word humbles us. I recently went to a forum held at another church um, that was uh, discussing how Christians who hold different views regarding human sexuality uh, can be more inclusive of the LGBTQ community. And, um, and there were three pastors from three different churches who hold three different views. And y'all, I was real excited about this conversation. I really kind of wanted to see how this happened and how they interacted. Um, and I found myself pretty disappointed with the whole thing. And not because the pastors weren't gracious to one another and loving towards one another, because they were. But what I found as I was sitting there and listening to them talk, no one seemed to talk about the struggle, the struggle with God's word, what it means to be under God's word, and how sometimes it contradicts the way we feel. It sometimes contradicts what we want. It sometimes contradicts the conclusions that our experiences have led us to. There was a lot of sharing of feelings and there were a lot of personal stories, but I wanted to hear how those feelings and those personal stories were interacted with God's word. 
for the one pastor who held very conservative views, I wanted to know about that process. I want to know what it was like to, did, how did you come to that? Did you really wrestle and study God's word and really try to leave behind all your personal preferences or, or, or your belief that this is just the way that we've always thought? And for the, for the pastor who held the liberal view, I wanted to know, did, did she allow her experiences to be read by God's word or did she simply read God's word in light of her experiences? See, I wanted to hear that conversation. Because in that conversation, we find that God's word humbles us, and it humbles us every time. In fact, God's word humbles us every time throughout all of human history. No, no time has there been that God's word has not been hard for someone to swallow. Listen, if we lived in a time or a place where, where, um, where people's whole existence relied on, on kind of family solidarity, if we lived in a time that wasn't as individualistic as ours, when we got to passages in the Bible that talked about sex and talked about it being prohibited outside the, the confines of marriage, that probably wouldn't be hard for us to stomach because our whole life, um, you know, is built around the fact that our family is very stable. But then maybe we live in a, in a culture that is very revenge-based, that's very violent. And all of a sudden, you know, we read passages that talk about forgiveness and forgiving your enemy, and you think, that part's crazy. Like, if we actually tried to live like that, if we tried to adopt that, we won't survive. See, in our culture, most people find what the Bible says about forgiveness beautiful, an ideal worth trying to obtain. And yet, a lot of times, we, say what, we look at what it says about sex, and we say, we say that's archaic or that's old-fashioned. Hundreds of years from now, things that you and I think, things that you and I believe, things that we think we are so enlightened about, someone's going to look back on us and think at best that that was ridiculous and at worst that that was horrific. And we don't even have to wait 100 years for that to happen. Um, if you have a teenager, I, uh, I have a middle schooler, Oliver, who, uh, who I thought I was a youth pastor for seven years. I thought that bought me some time to be still cool with my kids. But uh, I was talking with Oliver about something and, and trying to kind of correct some, some wrong thinking he had about some things. And, and he looked at me and he said, Dad, you just don't understand. You don't know what it's like. You don't know that times have changed. It's not the 1900s like when you grew up. I'm like, oh. Gosh, if one of the reasons you can't fully accept the Bible as being authoritative is because sometimes the Bible offends you, think about this. If God is really speaking through the Bible, if the Bible is really not a product of a particular culture, if it really is God-breathed, then it would offend every culture at some point. That at some point it would critique every single culture that's existed. That it would humble everybody. If it really is God's word, somewhere it has to offend you. And if it's never offended you, keep reading. Our first and primary sin was wanting to be like God. That was it. We wanted to be like God. We wanted to know good from evil apart from dependence on God. And that still is our first and primary sin. We don't want to depend on God. We don't want to depend on the one who thought us up, who designed us, who knows how we work best. So whenever we read God's word, it will humble us. And if Jesus really is the son of God, if he was raised from the dead, we have to submit to God's word as authority because he did. 
if Jesus isn't who he said he is, if he's just some lunatic or he's a liar or he's something even more devious, then, then this discussion about the authority of God's word doesn't matter. But if he is indeed who he said he is, we have no choice but to fully submit because he did. But we're going to talk about that a little later. I don't want to get um, too ahead of myself. So, so first off, the Bible, God's word humbles us. And second, it grows us. Sherry uh, just became a Christian a few weeks ago, and Sherry has been coming to Summit on and off for over a year, um, and she's someone who has really wrestled with God's Word. She's read a lot of it. She's read a lot of books about it, but she really struggled with some of the things that are in here before she finally, a couple weeks ago, came and said, hey, I believe now, and it was, it was a great day. Well, Sherry signed up, um, as, as any new Christian probably did, uh, to do the first week of reading through James. And so um, one of the things that's been great about this James study is the responses that people have been writing each day as they read a chapter. And Sherry wrote a response on, on day three. And this was after reading chapter three of James, which deals a lot with taming the tongue. And I want to read to you uh, what, uh, what our, our new sister in Christ uh, wrote about James three. She said, I needed to read this today. I'm currently in the midst of a battle between many people in one of my workplaces and insults, harsh words, and accusations are being slung around freely. I feel and have felt the urge to throw my own words in there. However, I have chosen to keep my words positive and try to remind them all that we have a story. As time goes on with this battle, it becomes more difficult, and I'm so thankful to have read these words this morning. It has given me that extra boost to keep going, and I realize that there are other ways to use my words. God's word grows us, and it begins growing us immediately. Let's look again at verse 27. 27 says this, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Many commentators on James say that this is really the key verse of the whole book of James. That in fact, this is the summary of everything that James is teaching. That it is, uh, it is the little synopsis of what a word-shaped life and church actually looks like. One of the things I've realized over these past few months as we as a church have been looking at what it means to be on mission is how even though I've grown up in the church my whole life, even though I went to Christian school and I won Christian of the Year trophies at my Christian school and I was a youth pastor for seven years and I've been your pastor for the last four years, I realized that I didn't ever really connect how how inseparably linked service and caring for the poor is to our salvation. Now, I knew as a Christian that we should care about those things that we should help the needy, that we should care about the outcast, that we should, we should welcome in the outsider. I knew that that was important, but I didn't understand just how linked they were. And over these past few months, I've come to see that they are inseparable. In fact, over and over again, the Bible connects a heart that has been saved by grace with a heart that responds to the poor and injustice. According to the Bible, they are one and the same. So why should a believer in the gospel of Jesus Christ be passionately involved in the service of those in need? Because that's who a believer is. Because that's who the gospel of Jesus Christ has made us. 
And it's not that through service we get saved, but it is if you are saved, you'll serve. We're not saved by our service, but if we're saved, we'll serve. We have to. We can't help it. It's who we are. I'm reading To Kill a Mockingbird right now with my kids. And, um, and for those of you in Lake Mary, I shared with this with you a few weeks ago. So this is review. Um, but for the rest of us, if you haven't read To Kill a Mockingbird, uh, you should. It's a great book. It's a, it's a pretty easy book to read. Um, and if you don't want to read it, the movie's fairly good too. So you should, you should do one of those two things. Um, but in the story, you have a, a lawyer, a small town lawyer in Alabama by the name of Atticus Finch. And he, uh, this is, takes place in like the 1930s, he takes on a case where he's defending a black man who's been accused of assaulting a white woman. And Atticus has two young kids, grade school kids, who, uh, who once this gets out, they get bullied at school. And so his young, precocious little daughter named Scout comes to him and asks her, ask her dad, why are you defending this man? And I want you to hear Atticus's response. He says, Scout... I couldn't go to church and worship God if I didn't try to help that man. See, one of the signs of true religion is that you care for the poor, that you visit widows and orphans, that you seek justice for the marginalized. And the word look after that's in verse 27 actually means to advocate, to advocate. It means to do justice for someone. So if you're saved, you'll serve. That's true religion. But true religion is also to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. God's word grows us in both these areas. And listen, we all have a bent one way or the other. For some of us, we're more prone to, to get excited about social responsibility and social justice. And for others of us, we're more prone to seek personal holiness. And this isn't just individually. This also happens as churches. Churches that tend to be more liberal talk a lot about justice. But oftentimes, uh, they, they, they don't talk about or they just completely accept anyone's view of, of, of their sexual lifestyle. But then you have conservative churches that, that talk a lot about personal holiness in regards to, to sin and behavior. But then oftentimes, we'll talk about uh, the verses about caring for the poor in, a, in an over-spiritualized way. But the Bible says they're inseparably linked that if we allow God's word to grow in us, we're going to grow in both of these areas. If you tend to be more conservative over time, being under the authority of God's word, you will become more liberal and vice versa. And what, I'm not talking about politically here. I'm not saying if, if you started as a Democrat over time under the authority of God's word, you're going to become a Republican or vice versa. I'm not saying that, but I am saying you will go from a person who focuses primarily on personal holiness to one who also cares about the poor. Or from a person who fights for injustice, who also cares deeply about personal holiness. I hate how polit politicians use the Bible. And most of them do. They, they, they use it, but what they do most of the time is they pick and choose what they want to use. Very rarely are you going to hear a Democrat in a campaign speech quote Psalm 139, 13. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Or a Republican, quote Ezekiel 16, 49. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. This is speaking of Sodom and Gomorrah. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. 
And you say, wait, I, I thought Simon Gomorrah was about homosexuality. See, God's word grows us both in seeking justice for the oppressed and seeking personal holiness. One cannot go without the other. And lastly, God's word sets us free. I'm going to start in verse 23 and read this part again. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. How can a book full of rules, how can the perfect law set us free? When we think of freedom, at least me, I tend to think in terms of, of absence of restrictions. But I think that's a wrong definition. True freedom is being what God had in mind when he thought you up. Freedom is submitting to your design. Freedom is being released to be truly what you were built for. It's seeing yourself clearly and then not forgetting who you were made to be. Take a fish. Fish has gills, right? And the gills are designed to, to, to take in oxygen, but not like our lungs do through air, through water. And fish are given fins, which if any of you have ever walked around in fins, you know on land, uh, you look ridiculous. So you can't really get anywhere if you're wearing fins, but in the water, they propel you. So if you define freedom as the absence of restrictions, then for a fish to be truly free, it has to have the choice whether or not to live on land or sea. So if the fish chooses land, what happens in an hour? Does the fish still feel free? Unless the fish is restricted to water, it loses its freedom. See, true freedom is the ability to fulfill what we were built for. A fish was built to swim. A fish was built to dart like lightning through the water. That is until it's caught by John Parker, right? Like that is what a fish was designed to do. You see, freedom is not the absence of restrictions, but it's finding the right restrictions. And that's where God's word comes in. God's word gives us the right restrictions so that you and I can be free. And that's what I wanted to hear from this forum at this church was I wanted to understand how these pastors came to an understanding of the right restrictions that the Bible places on human sexuality and expression. Because the Bible tells us who we are. It tells us what we were built for, what God had in mind when, it, when he thought us up. The Bible is the place where we are set free from what the culture expects from us or places on us. The Bible sets us free from our own circumstances. It even sets us free from our own feelings. Although feelings are real, they aren't always true. We only sin because we feel like it. I've never sinned because I didn't feel like it. I always felt like if I'm going to sin, I feel like sinning. Feelings are real, but they're not always true. And through God's word, we are, we, are, we are exposed to the reasons why you and I would choose sin. When the Bible says, do not, conform, or, do not commit adultery, or do not lie, or, um, or, or, or forgive, the Bible's telling us that because of our design. We are all made in God's image. And God is faithful. God is faithful even if we're unfaithful to him. 
And God is truth. In him there is no darkness, there is no deceit. And God forgives, and he forgives, and he forgives 70 times 70. So when you and I are unfaithful, when you and I lie, when you and I choose to hold on to bitterness instead of to forgive, we are going against, we are violating our own design because we've been created in the image of our creator. So submitting to God's word is submitting to our design, and that's what sets us free. Have you experienced that kind of freedom? Let me end with this. Verse 22. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. People love this verse. I don't, I don't know why. I do not love this verse. Um, I, I think this, ver- this verse always makes me feel guilty. It always shows me how, how poorly I have lived this out. And for me, and I think this is universally true, guilt never really changes our heart. Only grace does. But as I was sitting in this verse that makes me uncomfortable, this verse that I do not like um, all week, I just kept thinking about the one person who truly did what it says. In the book of Hebrews, it says when Jesus came into the world, he said this, I delight to do thy will. O Lord, thy law is in my heart. Jesus never forgot what God's word said, and he always did it. We have about 1,800 verses of things that Jesus said. And of those 1,800 verses, 10% of them are him quoting the Old Testament. Jesus was constantly quoting God's word. When Jesus faced his greatest trials and temptations, after Jesus was baptized, he was led into the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. His response was quoting God's word. Even when Jesus hung on the cross and and people were mocking him and people were saying to him, hey, you saved other people. Why can't you save yourself? Get on down off that cross. Jesus' response was to quote God's word. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is him quoting Psalm 22. And Father, into thy spirit I commend, or um, um, into thy hands I commend my spirit is Jesus quoting Psalm 31. Jesus is the only man who ever did all of God's word. In fact, in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he's wrestling with the reality that he's going to take on the wrath of a holy God against the sin and brokenness and injustice of this world, he said, please, if there's any way this can pass me by, but ultimately said, not my will, but thy will be done. Jesus completely submitted to God's word, even though it cost him everything. But that's not all. Jesus is God's word. Think about this. When you and I, when we submit to God's word, we are submitting to the one who died for us. After Jesus rose from the dead, he met two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Um, and uh, and I, love, I, I wish I could have been there uh, because when he, when he walked with these two men along this road after his resurrection, we're told that he went through all of the scriptures which at the time was just the Old Testament. But he went through every bit of the scriptures and showed these disciples that everything in God's word was about him. It was all about him. So when you and I, when we submit to what God's word said, we are submitting to a word that died for us. So I know some of the things are hard. Some of the things are like, this doesn't seem fair. But you and I, we know that it's not a God who doesn't like us. 
It's not a God who's a cosmic killjoy who's saying, submit to this. No, we know that the one who's asking us to submit is the one who died in our place. The Apostle John begins his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. When you and I choose to submit to God's word, we're submitting to him. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it's living and active. I thank you that it's not bound to one particular culture, but that it transcends all cultures. That in your word, we can see more clearly who we were meant to be. And we can see more clearly where we've fallen short, where we've turned away from depending on you. Father, I ask that you would make us a church full of people who want to submit to your word, who will wrestle with it, but who ultimately will say, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus, thank you, though, that you did it perfectly in our place. So that when we mess it up, when we come to verses like verse 22 that make us feel guilty, we can look to you and know that there is grace upon grace upon grace. Father, we ask uh, that you would take your word even now and as we go out into whatever we have next, whatever's coming into this next week, that we would allow ourselves to be reshaped by your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.